Welcome to the show. Pete Callender, the Pete Callender Show. News Talk 1110-993-WBT, 704-570-1110 and 1-800-WBT-1110. Uh, today we're going to have the Speaker of the House join us. Tim Moore is going to join us to talk about uh, a couple of different topics, uh, one being the refugees, the evacuees. Are we allowed to call them refugees? I just remember when we called them refugees several years ago, we were told that that was racist and we shouldn't call people refugees any longer, so they became evacuees. So anyway, people from Afghanistan, the um, the interpreters, the translators who worked with our military at the time uh, before we pulled out. So we're, we're totally out of Afghanistan. I mean, aside from all of those people we left. But aside from them, we're totally out of Afghanistan. We're going to get into some of that as well. Um, I want to start, though, with a piece by Charles C.W. Cook, uh, who is now an American treasure, although he is from Britain. He writes at National Review, and um, he has a piece today called uh, The Bitter Truth. There is still no rhyme or reason to COVID-19. This is one of the things, for the people who have been screaming about the science, you know, capital T, capital S, the science, part of the science is that when the science tells you your hypothesis or prior belief was incorrect based on false assumptions or experiments, it requires you to adopt a different hypothesis, right? You're supposed to adapt to new information. That's what the science requires. And throughout the pandemic, it's been one of my biggest frustrations is people dig in to a particular position and then they refuse to leave it as if like they're going to be indicted as as if it is some sort of character flaw right like well i thought that this you know xyz thing would work and it didn't and so i gotta stick to it because otherwise you know i might be wrong like that's okay you're allowed to be wrong on a brand new virus that's you know spreading all over the planet that the chinese were cooking up in a lab allegedly i mean what can we say like you're going to make some mistakes, I, and I'm okay with that. I I give elected officials a lot of leeway. I give them some you know latitude here because again they're dealing with a brand new virus too and how to respond. And they're relying on quote unquote experts who don't really seem to be expert in a great many things on public policy and human behavior, but uh, they're relying on all this information. And you got layers and layers of unknowns. But it doesn't seem like a lot of people kind of recognize that. It's it's been it's been a really big frustration for me, and uh, I've I've mentioned it uh, like in the realm of ventilation, for example. Right? Where are uh, where are people advocating for better ventilation? Where where is that cohort? Where are those elected officials? Why am I not hearing that being pitched for a year and a half now? Right? The masks is another one. The masks. We have we're getting more and more studies now because again, as we've you know progressed through this thing, we are, we now have larger um, pools of data from which to draw conclusions, right? Which makes sense because we're in it a year and a half. We got more people. We've got different uh, states. We've got different cities. We've got different countries that have been making different policies and seeing how they work. And let's see what ha- let's see what works and let's see what doesn't. And by the way, this is an argument for 
federalism, for decentralization, right? This is the benefit of our system of governance in that if a state does something really, really stupid, like, um, you know, California, for example, right? That their stupidity is not going to be automatically replicated in every state because other states can look at what California did and say, oh, my gosh, don't do that because look at what happened to them, right? These the states are the, you know, laboratories uh, of democracy, right? Like you get to experiment with different policies, different law, see what works, see what doesn't. And then the good ideas uh, can be replicated, can be adopted. Two presidents, 50 states, 195 countries, a multitude of different approaches, and still there's no rhyme or reason to the pandemic, says Charles C.W. Cook. Vaccines help a great deal, that much we know. Beyond that, though, the coverage of the virus has mostly been partisanship and witchcraft. I agree. It, 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 the legacy media outlets, the corporate media, have, have disgusted me. Disgusted me. A few days ago, now that's not to say that some outlets every now and again, some reporters every now and again do good work. They do. But the general coverage and the general narrative that has been advanced over the last year and a half. Um, it's been grotesque. It really has. It's been grotesque. The model that media uses in order to drive audience numbers, clicks and eyeballs and earbuds, like all of that, that system, the teasing and the promotion and all of that has made things worse. It actually has made things worse. It has instilled a fear in people because, you know, in the past we would laugh at the way the media would sensationalize and try to scare you into, you know, watching their newscast. It was a it was a joke. But when presented with an actual threat, a virus that nobody knows how it was spread at first, right? Nobody realized how it was spread. People thought, remember, it was all over the tabletops and doorknobs and everywhere, Um So we didn't know anything about the virus. It was brand new. It was spreading very quickly. We didn't know how it was spreading. And the media made it worse. And now they can't they can't get off of the the treadmill. This I guess it would be a hamster wheel, right? This dopamine uh, hamster wheel. They just keep promoting and teasing, promoting and teasing. You're all going to die and it's getting worse. And oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, we're going to die. And then that drives the clicks, and so they give you more of it, and it's just over and over and over and over again. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. So a few days ago, the New York Times ran an excellent piece on the terrible spike in Florida of COVID cases. This according to the piece at the National Review by Charles C.W. Cook. Even a state that made a major push for vaccinations can be crushed by the Delta variant, said the New York Times, while noting that Florida ranks 21st among states in Wash- uh, and Washington, D.C., in giving people of all ages at least one shot. Again, Florida ranks 21st among all states and the, and, uh, the District of Columbia in giving people of all ages at least one shot. Indeed, the Times noted that nobody is quite sure why this is happening. Quote, exactly why the state has been so hard hit remains an elusive question, not least because, quote, other states with comparable vaccine coverage have a small fraction of Florida's hospitalization rate. 
other states with comparable vaccination numbers have a small fraction of Florida's hospitalization rate. Many of the Times readers were frightfully upset by this blunt assessment of the facts. On Twitter, MSNBC's Kyle Griffin put his fingers in his ears and screamed, this is not true, and then added, you know it, do better. Soledad O'Brien, formerly of CNN, now doing I'm not sure what, went on to uh, describe the piece as, quote, journalistic malpractice. See, this, this is a window into the mindset of certain journalists right, to, to promote, quote, truth, right? That's their goal, and the truth is what they believe it to be, based on their journalisming, obviously. What a strange and neat little world some people have made for themselves, Cook says. What Griffin, O'Brien, and others wanted the New York Times to say was that red states are bad and blue states are good. Or maybe, as Paul Krugman argued over the weekend, that the North is good and the South is bad, just like during the Civil War. (laughs) Which is simply not true. It's not correct. If it were, what would account for the death rate pairings? So these are similar. So I'm about to read to you a, a, a bunch of pairings of North state, North states and South states that have the same death rate, right? New York, Mississippi, or similar death rates, New York and Mississippi, Alabama and Connecticut, Michigan and Arkansas, Texas and Delaware, Idaho, Colorado. For months, people in the press have banged on and on and on about Florida's governor, and then they've been shocked to learn that even after a terrible spike of COVID cases and deaths, a spike that now looks like it's actually starting to fade, as expected, Florida's record remains better than those of New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Michigan, and Illinois. That the number of kids who have died in Florida per capita is not only exactly in line with the national average, but it's about five times lower than Washington, D.C.'s number. It's just over half of New York's number. Right? Far from lagging behind, Florida's vaccination rate is actually above the national average. And just over, uh, and rather, and despite having a disproportionately older population, Florida sits in the bottom half for deaths among senior citizens. The state of Louisiana, which seems to get hit around the same time as Florida, almost as if there's something going on geographically and weather-wise. Hmm. Each time there is a wave of COVID-19 infections, these two states tend to uh, be hit at the same time. Currently, Louisiana has many of the policies that Florida does not. The indoor mask mandate that applies even to the vaccinated a statewide school mask mandate for all students over the age of five, and in the city of New Orleans, a system of vaccine passports. And despite all of this, Louisiana's death rate is the fourth worst in America. Fourth worst. Why isn't anybody hammering away at the Louisiana governor? Could it be? Might it have something to do with the D after that governor's name? (gasps) No, say it ain't so. Florida has a much older population. It has like the largest senior population in America. And Louisiana 
42nd. It's a pretty young state. 42nd oldest, so what does that mean? It's like the 8th youngest. They're in 20th place. 20th place on the uh, the COVID death count So what for that population. So what gives? What's going on? See, like the data doesn't make this fit neatly into your red states, bad, blue states, good narrative. But that's the way media can't help but thinking you're going to hear about it in this story I've got on uh, the Speaker of the House, Tim Moore, and his, uh, you know, his desire to see the Afghan interpreters get settled in North Carolina. He wants to bring some of the, he wants to bring these refugees, evacuees, he wants to bring them to North Carolina. And there is this assumption in the News and Observer article about this, you're going to hear it, that Republicans bad, Democrats good. You're going to hear it. It's because this is the this is the framework upon which most stories are built, are written. Um, even if they don't, even if these reporters don't even recognize it, there's it's subconscious. I'm convinced. There's no other explanation for it. Kane is in the building. News Talk 1110-993-WBT, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. Let me bounce on over to the phone lines. And uh, not actually bouncing. I'm not even, I'm, I'm still in the same chair. Just going to reach over and press the button. Hey, Dean, welcome to the show. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm all right, man. What's up? Hey, the only thing I wanted to, I'm not, this isn't what I wanted, but I'm, you know, the infection rates in Louisiana and Florida and all that. I'm going to tell you what it is in one word, okay? All right. Air circulation. That's two okay. words. You're a liar. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, hey, I can be in the media then, right? No, never mind. That's true. You could. <laughs> there's, there's a dash in between the words. Yeah. No, there is you. not a dash Thank between you. air circulation. Give me a break. No, the one word would be ventilation. But yes, no, I air circulation, exactly. Get the fans oh. cranked up and start moving air around these indoor spaces. I, you're right. Uh, how can I argue with you? You can't, um, mainly because I'm but, saying the same thing you just said, so it <laughs> kind of falls in line there. <laughs> mainly I wanted to talk about the news media from when you started the, yeah. the show and all that. Um, I agree with you. I think the, the our, our interpretation of news and the media's definition of news um, have really you know, gone in completely different directions. I, I don't know if you remember, but... And a long time ago, news really wasn't a profit center, I don't think. I think it was it was more or less a status of media, you know. Uh, this is a long time ago. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I don't think, and I think now it's it's looked at, you know, you got to put food on the table. So you got to, you know, it's. It depends um, on what kind of news. I think it depends on what kind of news you're talking about, because uh, in the, you know, if you're talking about you know, a hundred years ago, print, that's a profit center, no. right? That, I mean, th- those were publishers, and they, they dominated the marketplace, right? It was a different era. You didn't have to worry about, you know, 150 years ago, you weren't concerned about radio and television, no. right? So you, you, could, you could advertise, and you could drive a lot of policy discussion. You can make change. You were very, very powerful. And to a large extent, you know, these legacy print outlets they still do have a lot of influence, no doubt about it. Um, but then came, you know, I mean, radio, I mean, and then came television. And for TV, yeah. you are correct on the TV side. These yeah. news organizations, the operations, were set up as 
not really profit centers. They were set up, uh, you know, for, you know, to, to prove that they were doing a public service, a public good, basically. Uh, they had these public airwaves. But, yeah, they had programming that they would fill the whole rest of the day. And then they built their newsrooms, you know, as part of their product so they could offer stuff and sell advertising. But, yeah, news, actual news creation is a it's not a very profitable thing because, like, you're, people say, oh, do we have any investigative journalists? Well, very few. You know why? Because it's very expensive. You could be tracking down a story for months and then find out that the whole thing isn't really newsworthy and you have to abandon it. And there's not a lot of management that's going to it's going to let you do that for you know for long if you start tracking down stories that turn out to bust uh you know one right after another after another eventually they're going to say okay you can't pick good news stories to investigate you're wasting time and money you're off the beat and let's not, let's just you know send you out to shoot video of the fires because ooh fire you know and it's it's going to sell so what you're saying like the bandwidth for the truth is much narrower than you know creating a a story that'll sell and all that. Well, so, so how does not necessarily like WVT? Not necessarily. Well? No, no, not necessarily. Like for it, because what you're talking about again, you have to be clear on what it is on on what platform you're talking about. Because here, here you go. He's a great example of a of an investigative journalist uh, journalistic outfit, Project Veritas, right? James O'Keefe, and mm-hmm. but how often are they cranking out new investigative pieces? They do a lot, don't get me wrong, but what what's roughly their content creation cycle? It's probably what, once a month, right? Uh-huh. You, you you can't you can't fill a nightly newscast with once a month. You you just like that's not going to work, right? You got to make slot. You got to fill the news hole. So, how do you do that? You can't you can't put James O'Keefe on staff and have that whole operation that he runs I don't know how much it generates in profit um, or brings in in revenue, but it's probably in the millions. That, but like that's you you can't do that for one story a month. So now try to scale that, and you see the problem. You got to have content created, and that means things that aren't necessarily investigative news, investigative journalism is going to make it into the final broadcast. Well, do you think the news departments take the same perspective as you just? Dis- you know, explain to me or not, or it all depends again. It w- so again, it depends on what platforms you're talking about. Cause some sites, some outfits are simply aggregators, right? They're not doing a lot of original content. Um, and mm-hmm. it, every, and, and you know, people like, for example, the newsroom here, um, there's not, I mean, that what we used to call in the business enterprise, Right. We do cover stuff, but we don't cover everything. Like we, like when I was a reporter here 15 years ago, we had what four, I think, actual full-time reporters. That's very expensive to run, and but that meant I could go out and cover an apartment fire, you know. But now, do people really need to, you know, have a live reporter on the scene to tell them that there's an apartment building on fire? Probably not. You can probably just convey that with what I just said. There was an apartment fire at this address, right? Uh, and so, mm-hmm. but it just, these are the decisions that every news organiza- organization makes based on revenue, audience, right? All of these things factor in. So, again, it's just going to depend on the kind of platform you're talking about. Now, the national guys um, at the uh, you know television stations, they've got tons of money, but they're also paying their anchors, I would argue, is a grotesque amount of money, which is basically to keep them 
from getting in trouble and embarrassing the the company. Like that's what I think most of the money <laughs> they pay. Like these guys that are up there that are making you know millions and millions and millions of dollars to anchor a newscast that is written by somebody else, reported on by other people. Um, I don't. I think they they just give them a ton of money so they can build themselves a bunker, hide away, and never get in trouble. Well, don't they equate that with um, with uh, you know ratings and stuff? I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, at the the bottom line is you know yeah. If nobody's watching, nobody's advertising, and nobody does anything. Correct. Um, right. So that drives. I don't want to go on, but but that yeah. but, and but therein lies the problem. No, I mean I'll talk about this stuff forever. Like the um, therein lies sort of the uh, the inherent friction inside of the news business model, right? Where you're trying to get people to watch, you're trying to get an audience, and so therefore, where if you get a good audience, a large enough audience, you can then sell at a higher rate, right? So this. And there are people who make the argument that the advertising-driven model uh, is bad for news. And, and you know, these are people who are like, NPR is so much better. Well, you know, I mean, I think commercial radio stations would really love to have an extra, you know, one or two percent from the government thrown into their bottom lines as well. That would be very helpful. Charles C.W. Cook at the National Review, nationalreview.com. He says, Israel, which has done everything that the loudest critics on the left wanted America to do, is right now stuck in the throes of a devastating surge of the COVID virus. Israel instituted repeated and draconian lockdowns enforced by drones, no less. It's used a uh, nationwide mask mandate. It uh, repeatedly, it has vaccinated almost everybody early, right? Even added booster shots now into the mix. And it even um, instituted the system of vaccine passports. And right now, it's getting crushed. Per NPR, despite becoming the first country on earth to fully vaccinate a majority of its citizens against COVID-19, it now has one of the world's highest daily infection rates. Nearly one in every 150 people in Israel today has the virus. And so the question really is, is Israel a red state or a, uh, a red state or a blue state? Like that's the question, right? Is Israel a red state or blue state? The most vitriolic voices in our COVID debates are little more than glammed up conspiracy theorists. I agree, Charles C.W. Cook. I agree. The journalist David Aronovich. 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 I think is how you pronounce it. Anyway, David uh, argues that such people tend to fall back on their ideas because the volatility and complexity of the real world is simply too scary for them to handle. He then cites uh, 9-11 conspiracy theorists, and this is a really good example of it. People who are too afraid, too frightened, I should say, by the idea that 19 people with box cutters could do that, right? So there has to be some grand plan. There has to be somebody pulling the lever, directing it all. It's a way that we comfort ourselves from the frightening reality, which is, no, like, life really is that chaotic that 
things like that can happen, right? So it's much easier to believe that if we put the people you like in charge of everything and we make them say the right words on TV, the worst pandemic in a century will bend to their will. So that's easier. If they if we just do that, put my guy in there, have him say the right things, and the, the virus will do what he says, rather than accept that human beings are alarmingly susceptible to chaos, which we are. The uncomfortable truth is that beyond developing, encouraging, and providing inoculation, there's not much that any government can do to guarantee success. And even when it does what it can, a lot of people are going to resist for reasons bad and good. This is chaos. This is, right? And for people, so there's a, You've probably heard of him by now, right? Jordan Peterson. He's the Canadian. Uh, he's a clinical psychiatrist. Uh, he does. He, he started off years ago posting his uh, his college lectures online, and uh, he then became. And then he wrote a book, "The Twelve Rules for Life," and he started doing a lot of these. Uh, he went on, you know, speeches. He's made tons of appearances, and um. He made international news when he fought back against the Canadian government's speech codes, where they tried to force people like him, college professors among them, uh, to uh, that they would basically like penalize them legally if they did not use the pronouns that somebody told them to use. And so he got a lot of uh, fame off of that. I'm not saying he did it for fame. I'm just saying that's what kind of launched him. That's how I became aware of him. It's kind of launched him into international notoriety. I mean, before that, he was just some Canadian professor. Well, um, over the last, you know, two weeks or so since we moved into the apartment and I've been scrubbing every single nook and cranny and uh, spraying, you know, roach spray everywhere I could uh, find every nook and cranny, um, particularly on the English muffins, because those things are filled with them. Just a heads up there. So, I've been spending a lot of time listening to uh, some of the podcasts that, he, uh, that that he's been on. And he talks about, and this comes from his psychiatry world, which is order and chaos, that people are predisposed to one or the other, generally speaking. And you can go too far in either direction, right? People who become too ordered. Their minds, they think in a way that's way too ordered. Think OCD, right? You become obsessive about certain things, and you you can't, like, oh, no, you can't move that, that you know, I don't know. You got a bowl of chips. You put it on the table. Yo, you can't move it off the center. It's got to be right in the center. You know, like, that's, that's too far. Like, everything in its place, too far. He recommends for people, by the way, if you have this ordered mind, he says, get a dog. <laughs> that'll force you <laughs> to have kids that'll force you <laughs> to uh, to have to kind of live with chaos because that's what a dog kind of is right um then there's the chaos side of the brain or the personality types right people who are more predisposed to the chaos side and you want a little of that that's you know creativity thinking outside the box right that kind of chaotic mind but if taken too far right insane right and you want to have a you want to have a healthy balance. You want to be ordered in some things and a little bit creative and open and chaotic in other things. And a lot of people, I think, 
have responded with this, uh, responded to the chaos of life by getting more and more ordered. Does that make sense? They start going more and more ordered. And I think that's what drives a lot of these command control types. The people who are in government, the fatal conceit of all of the bureaucrats and educrats and government officials, they're like, well, we can just, you know, figure out the formula and then we'll be able to produce all the bread for the bread lines, right? Like this has always been the fatal conceit that one person, I think I made a, a comment uh, a couple of days ago about this, you know, Anthony Fauci, and this was an example given to me by a fella, I think his name was John Tammany, and he wrote a book uh, called the uh, When Politicians Panicked. And we were talking about the wisdom of crowds, basically. And he said, you know, you put Anthony Fauci in a baseball stadium, and he very well may be the smartest person in that stadium. Like, let's just assume he's the smartest individual person in that entire stadium of whatever 50,000 people. But he's not smarter than the 50,000 people. Does that make sense? There's no way he could know and be smarter than all of those other people combined. Because their knowledge combined obviously is more than his one brain is going to contain. And when looking at a pandemic response, the wisdom of the crowd will lead us to proper and more efficient and effective solutions. And I've mentioned this in various forms over the last few weeks, which is when you got people, you know, that are like, screw you, I'm not taking the vaccine. And then they get sick and die. And it's like, hmm, maybe I'll take the vaccine. Right. Or people are like, uh, you know, oh, you got to wear the mask, got to wear the mask. And then nothing happens to the people who aren't wearing masks. Maybe we say, hmm, maybe the mask don't work. By the way, went out to eat um, the other day with Christy and we're at one of these places where you do like a buffet line where you're like, I would like this topping and that topping kind of deal. And as we're going down the line, I'm watching the guy behind the, the, spit yeah, the spit guard, yeah, the sneeze guard. And he keeps pulling the mask Cause as he's talking about what, what we have to offer, his mask keeps sliding down. So he keeps grabbing the front of it and pushing it back up. And you can see the whole front of his mask is grease stained because he's touching the food. Like, you're going to tell me that that's a better solution. It's not a better solution. It doesn't, it didn't look like a better solution. I was like, I'll tell you what, I'm just going to move down to the next part of the line where that other person is going to touch the food. Thanks so much.